Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everyone, we are back. I'm really excited to have Mark Fisher with us. Yeah guys, Mark is our VP of Facilities, Planning, and Sustainability here at the Cincinnati Zoo. He is our green guy, our go-to guy when you need something made sustainably, make it as green as possible. He knows his stuff. We're really excited to have him on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes. I I feel like you're really good at getting things done. Like if there's something that needs to be done, go to Mark. (laughs) Like you make it happen. If nothing else. (laughs) Nothing else. We get things done. Yes. Well, I mean, that means a lot. Sometimes things can move slowly. So we said your title, but tell us what that means. What do you actually do? Okay. So I am the support uh, officer for the facilities team at our zoo. So what does that mean? So at our zoo, facilities is the idea creation, development, design, and construction of the new stuff. It's all Rue Valley, Africa, et cetera. And then the other half, roughly, is maintaining said zoo. So maintenance, horticulture, security, et cetera. I've also um, been lucky enough to be tied into our uh, farms up in Warren County and uh, Claremont County, which a lot of people don't know about, uh, as well as helping um, us maintain a positive, uh, loving relationship with our friends and neighbors in Avondale. Yeah, you do a lot. Yes, all very important work, off-site and on-site at the zoo. What's what's your background like? like? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, so I'm not from anywhere. I grew up in the military, uh, but my dad retired here. So when I went to Lakota and then to UC for civil engineering, and then I worked for Turner Construction for 12 years, half that at the zoo. So that's how I got to know people here. And then in 06, uh, there was an opening, and the director at the time, Greg Hudson, who's now running the Dallas Zoo, offered me a job, and I took it. Uh, and that was March of 2006. It's been a crazy wild ride ever since. Yeah, and what a way to get into the zoo. Like, you probably didn't graduate thinking you'd ever work for a zoo, did you? No, not, not even not even a little bit. Uh, but I would say, after working here with Turner, uh, I got a glimpse into the potential of the zoo and the awesome people here. So that's what attracted me. And to be honest with you, the zoo was a total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> the infrastructure had been neglected for 50 years. The money was upside down. The morale was in the tank. As an engineer, I looked at all those things and thought, well, that's an opportunity for me to help make things better. So, And I just really enjoyed the people. So when I when I got the job offer, I didn't even think about it for five minutes. That's awesome. Boom, done, turning my two weeks the next day. And I think of it like it was the animals. Like, you know, most people are like, oh, yes. yeah, I could be an accountant anywhere, but why wouldn't I be somewhere where I can see animals on a daily basis? But that's awesome that the people drew you in, kind of kept you here. Yes. And, and to say you've helped make things better, that's probably a bit of an understatement here. So you've got a bit of an engineering background, but what got you so interested in sustainability specifically? So I've always uh, had a personal passion for uh, sustainability and essentially just lowering my personal footprint on the earth and also how I can do that through my profession, right? So that's always kind of been there. Uh, It was a little bit limited on when I was with Turner. It really wasn't a thing back then, to be honest with you. Sustainable design, it just started being talked about. Um, And what happened when we came here uh, and what was a nice thing is quite honestly there was a lot, a lot of low-hanging fruit <laughs> i mean this place was a friggin' disaster <laughs> let's just be blunt um and so what that means is uh, lots of opportunities like really quick for quick wins to get in there and make really subtle changes uh, with our own team we didn't have a bunch of fancy consultants we just got in there and started doing what we were good at um started seeing dramatic improvements um so it, to be honest with you it was a mix of like for me personally about um having a positive impact on the world around us, but also about just uh, operational excellence. That's 
sustainability is about speed and durability and strength and resiliency, like the and efficiency. Those, if you do all those things in your business operations, you will cut your carbon footprint in half. So it's not an either or. So it's a mix of we need to do the right thing here. We need to lower our footprint. We need to save the polar bears. We need to improve people's lives in our community. But we're going to do that by being smarter and better how we run our operations. So it really is that simple. I know there was like a big change in the water consumption we used here. What was that and what exactly did you fix? So uh, that journey started back at the old, um, what is now Night Hunters, which used to be uh, a cheetah facility and a painted dog facility way back. Um, when I first came to the zoo, um, I was taken to that spot because I asked the question, where is all this freaking water going? At the time, in 2005, the zoo was the largest water user in the city of Cincinnati at a quarter of a billion gallons wow. per wow, year. Wow, that's insane. Per year, every year, uh, and $600,000. And no one was even asking questions, where's this water going? So I asked that question, and they took us to that site. Next time you're at the Snow Leopard exhibit, uh, through the mesh, look behind you, and you'll see an old stone wall, and there where that stone wall was an old leak. Oh. And uh, we hadn't fixed that leak because we were lazy. Really? So people knew about it, but oh, we yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. didn't? All, all kind of excuses. Oh, it was going to be too hard. It was something that was, you know, the tree is in the way, or, you know, we'd shut down the exhibit. That's all translated into we were lazy as an organization. So we decided to be less lazy. So we got in there and we fixed it. And what we found was a four-inch water main had broken off. And 99.9% .9 of the water was going into a nearby crushed, buried manhole, sewer, combined sewer manhole. All we were seeing was this little fizz coming out the top. So it was kind of wet. Four inches of water at 90 PSI is millions and millions and millions and millions of gallons of water per year. So we fixed it. Uh, and as far as we can tell, that leak had been happening for at least 37 years. <gasps> Because Pat no Callahan way. had said it had been there ever since he had started, which at the time had been 37 years ago. Uh, I've been to the zoo for two weeks when we got into this. Um, and that's really what started is like we found out how much total water we're using. Uh, we didn't have any submeters, so we didn't know where the water was going. Um, but we knew just from common sense um, and experience that we, there were leaks all over the place. And whereas we were just, quite frankly, wasting water, um, either through ignorance or just and I keep going back to laziness, but our organization used to be lazy. It was mentally, physically, spiritually lazy. Uh, so we got after it, and we decided we were going to go after the water as our big topic. Uh, and it was a war on water waste. And the mentality was, if it's a leak, it needs to be addressed today, right now. And that's why you get stuffed on, I feel like that. Yes. I mean, it's a big deal. And it's like not only is it better, you know, responsibly, but for the zoo saving money. I can only imagine how much money we are saving now because of all of these fixes. Yeah, so our water usage is down in about the 45 million range, so 250 million down to 45 million, so we'll call it an 80-ish percent reduction, um, and we're, we're heading towards zero. We'll get into that later. Um, but over the last 15 years, the amount of money we've saved on our water bills is over $12 million. Wow, that's Which amazing. that money has all been put back into additional staff, additional resources, more exhibits, all these things. So all that money has just been reinvested back into the zoo. Matter of fact, the Galapagos and Bald Eagle exhibit, that project was put across the finish line several years ago because of direct savings from utilities. Wow. So the, the money doesn't go into some weird bucket that no one knows about. It goes right back into our reinvestment fund, which, you know, builds our zoo. Uh, so massive reduction in usage. Uh, we are no longer the largest water user in the city, not even close, um, saving a ton of money. Um, and it's the other piece of this is it opened up the discussion, something I didn't realize, and 
the next driver of our water savings program. It started as just being operationally better. But then it leaked into a conversation where the most significant environmental problem in Hamilton County is combined sewer overflows. It is by far the biggest issue where because our sewer system is very old, we have the oldest sewer system in the United States. That's crazy. Wow. You, now you know. Yeah. So, I didn't realize that. Many things yeah. to be proud of is just saying there's one of them right there. So we have that and our rainwater and our sewers or sewage goes to the same pipes, can't handle it, gets overwhelmed. So the only thing MSD, our sewer district can do is dump it into the river untreated during rain events. Mm. So 15 billion gallons of sewage goes into the river every year, our most important natural resource. In Far from Cincinnati. ideal. Right. Where's our drinking water come from? So we poop in our drinking water, 15 billion gallons a year. So the good news is we, <sighs> we poop in it downstream for we intake on <laughs> So Louisville's drinking our poop. Um, problem is every major town in the Midwest, and well, really the entire country has similar issues like this. Pittsburgh has the same problem. So we were drinking Pittsburgh poop as it comes Lucky down. Lucky us. So they pound it twice a year in football every year, and we're drinking their poop, and no one even understands what's going on. So it's great. So it's disgusting. So that's a huge problem. Of course, it's all going to the Gulf of Mexico which is one of the many contributors to the dead zone down there. We have 5,000 square miles of nothing in that area. It's because of these issues. So it's a huge environmental problem. But also the, when we discharge sewage into the river, the other thing that's happening at the same time is the systems are backing up, and we have sewage coming up into wherever. Yeah. And the lowest points of most of these systems are people's basements. So we were putting sewage in people's basements, and the primary determining uh, factor whether you have sewage in your basement is directly tied to your how much income you make and the color of your skin so these are major socioeconomic issues environmental justice issues so it's not just the fish and the shrimp and the gulf of mexico and all these environmental issues this is a people issue yeah and it's a major problem and it, to be honest it kind of pisses me off yeah, yeah. Just you're talking it's about huge. My blood pressure's going up again and in avondale we contribute to that problem so children's you see EP, all this concrete and asphalt up, up on, in Uptown. Our sewer system, which goes out to the Mill Creek, is one of the worst in the city. So as we started learning about these things, that's what started this next phase of our, con our conversation about rainwater collection and how if we can keep that rainwater out of the system that will not contribute to the major problem downstream, so that's good. And now all of a sudden I got this water, and if I can clean it up... Um, use it for our pools and our exhibits and hose down and then all of a sudden that's even less water i need yeah so that's where africa came in um and that's another reason we've gotten down to 45 and how we're going to get down to zero is through elephant track so when we put in that million gallon system down there million gallons at one time which is huge that is a yeah. huge amount i mean of water. can you how many football so fields? If, if you're in africa uh -huh. so our current rain tank system in africa takes up like half the site It'll be two and a half times that. Okay. So the entirety of our Africa exhibit, imagine there being a 10-foot tank under it and it's full of water. It'll be more than an NFL football field. Okay, wow. Full. That's amazing. It, it's a huge amount of water. So, Wait, how do you get a tank? I have so many questions now. <laughs> how do you get a water tank that big? Is it all one part? Are you putting it down so in parts? Multiple, Are you building it? Good question. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Dig so a giant of, hole? For sure, giant hole. Okay. <laughs> some of it's big pipe, some of it's precast concrete. It all depends on some engineering issues, but it's in many pieces. Okay. Um, and many pumps. And so down in Elephant Track, we'll collect that water, and then we'll turn around and pump it back up to Manatee, Indian you know, Rhino, Night Hunters, the whole thing. So it'll be a huge mass distribution program. But I say all this to say, you know, we've gone from 250 million gallons to 45, and we're going to get down to nothing. How? And that's how we're going to do it. If you're doing, if the tank will hold a million, which is insanely impressive, 
where does that 45 in a million? Like, Okay, good question. So that's a million at any given time. Throughout the whole year, that's tens and tens of oh, millions of yes. gallons. Okay. So how we're going to get to net zero water is currently we're about 45 million gallons of usage. The amount of rain that is hitting our zoo is about 50 million gallons-ish. So in concept, if you can collect that water, keep it out of the sewer systems, keep it out of our neighbor's basements, out of the high River, and clean it up like we do for Fiona and John the Lion and everybody else, um, clean that water, not only providing best-in-class water for our animals because there's nothing in the water. There's no chlorine. There's no nothing. It's cleaner than city water, literally. Best-in-class water for our animals, keeping it out of those sewers, uh, and now it's water I don't have to buy. Yeah. <laughs> Which, let's be blunt, it's a significant amount of money, um, especially with sewer rate tripling in the city of Cincinnati over the last 10 years. So, um, so those, there's a financial engine behind all this, of course, uh, but we will do all those things over the next few years um, to take what started in Africa, like really started in Africa, end it down in Asia, and in our back parking lot. And to say that we are a net zero uh, water facility is going to be pretty much off the chain. I was going to uh, say, and, amazing. As, is that a no, thing anywhere no, else? It's, it's not. P- people aren't even talking about this stuff. Not in L.A., not in San Francisco, not in Portland. This is, when we put in the rain tank system in Africa 10 years ago, the, the federal EPA was involved, the U.S. Geological Survey was involved, all these federal agencies were involved because no one had ever done anything like this. On this scale where you're taking parking lot water, roof water, zebra poop, Coca-Cola, diapers, <laughs> what, all of it. Like, no yeah. one, so they used us as a test case. You're like, man, and to be blunt, at the time it was illegal. You can't, at the time it's just saying you can't take your own rainwater, clean it, and reuse it. That's literally illegal. Why? It's like that in almost every city in the United States for different reasons. Like, there's a public health issue, and like you know, if any like ho dunk guy says, "Yeah, I'm gonna take my water, I'm gonna redistribute," it's like, hold on a second, there's rules and regulations. Yeah. So there's makes sense to the point. It makes sense. Um, so what we did was a beautiful partnership with our sewer district. After three years of no, you can't do that. Uh, to their credit, like all right, yeah, let's figure this out together with the EPA, with the Geological Survey, and a bunch of other folks. Um, and now in the city of Cincinnati. If you want to capture your own rainwater, reuse it. There is a route in that variance process. That discussion started with our project here in Africa. That literally started that's the project. Amazing. So now, if you're interested and you want to do the same thing, you can do it. There's a variance route, but that's because of this project right out the door right here. That's and hopefully, other facilities are able to learn from your work, and other cities, other places are able to make those same kind of changes to their rules and laws. And yeah, so we've had, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of. I mean, we've spoken to tens of thousands of people. I mean, from mayors coming here, a lot of architects and engineers saying, how'd you do that? Yeah. That Little Rock Zoo was here two weeks ago. You know, want to do the same kind of thing. I would hope they want to um, copy us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would also say, though, one of the things that makes our zoo what it is, is all these things I'm saying, um, I'm talking in fun and jest, but they're also very difficult. Yeah. The amount sure. of, quite frankly, BS behind the scenes it takes to get through these issues, to figure this stuff out, is really, really hard. And as a society in the United States, we don't like to do hard things. That's why these things, why aren't everybody else doing this? Well, because it's hard. Yeah. Even though at the end of the day, we show success, and I got 10 years of data to show, bang, 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 bang. They're like, well, how come everybody's not doing this? Because it's friggin' hard. And our zoo does hard things. It's not afraid to get dirty and break the rules and make things happen. That's why. That's the difference. I was going to say, I have so, so many questions about just the process of it. Like, how did you get the idea, or how did you know it would work? How did you know what to put underground to collect everything if it hadn't been done before. Like, where do you even start with that? 
So that's a good question. I would say it's a little bit of a, one of the things that makes our zoo uh, click, um, you know, and this is a lot of credit to Thane Maynard, Nate Jenicky, um, is people here are allowed to think creatively um, and don't be afraid. We don't need to be afraid about um, ruffling some feathers every once in a while, breaking some rules and trying new things and making mistakes. That's the first thing. Um, I would also say what our facilities team, those, uh, your Zeus facilities team is good at, we are like the classic hillbilly engineers. Like, <laughs> so it's just that common sense on the ground, like, wait a minute, here's a problem. We don't need to overthink this. Yeah. Like, the idea of capturing rainwater and reusing isn't like a new idea. They've been doing it forever, literally for, since time began. <laughs> it's just over time, if we, as, a, as a society, we've become more sterile and rigid and yeah. sucked into the rules that some make sense and some don't. Next thing you know, and the lawyers get involved, and next thing you know, you, don't, you can't do anything outside of this little box well that's how you get to where we're at yeah so we're unraveling that in a very smart um open way um so that we're always being transparent with folks whether it be you know the health departments msd the waterworks all these different folks saying hey let's do this together uh let's learn from our mistakes um and that's kind of the cool thing about the zoo is we are we're not a developer we're not like some third party in and out like we're here for we've been to, we've been here longer than all these organizations i'm even talking to yeah so the idea that, hey, we'll do this together as a partnership, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to own it. So you have no risk, right? So they like that. And we're the zoo. And to be honest with you, after 15-plus years of doing it and showing that we know what we're doing, there's a built-up trust and a brand there that allows us to do things that other folks, those same departments would be like, eh, yeah, we're not, <laughs> we're not doing that with them. So that's, that's the power of the zoo. So to take our brand and what we've been doing – and then work with these agencies to say, all right, there is a way to do this. We're not going to just open up the floodgates, but we're going to allow other people to then take what we've learned with the zoo to maybe go down a road that we wouldn't have gone down a decade ago. That's pretty cool. I think you made a good point that it is really hard to do these things. When something's hard, it kind of, you get pushed back and you're like, well, do I, is this really worth it? Do I want to keep trying? Do I want to figure this out? So kudos to you guys. I don't know how you did it. Can you simplistically explain what's going on under Africa, how the water gets cleaned, because I'm sure, like you said, it took years to figure out. Mm -hmm. You had to convince other businesses, companies to trust you guys. Thankfully, now we have relationships built up, which helps and goes a long way for future projects. But I guess, yeah, first of all, it's amazing. And second of all, how, tell us what's under Africa. We have all these moats. We have, you know, the hippo pool that is all 100% rainwater. How does that work? How do we keep it clean? Yep. So the, the Reader's Digest version of that is Africa used to be our old main parking lot. So some folks might not know that. So when we sat down back in, I don't know, 2009 to start talking about it, uh, one of the things we talked about was we have this big, ugly parking lot and it's in a valley. So from the education center to the elephant, all that drains down into elephant or into Africa. So just, again, this hillbilly engineer is like, wait a minute. So there's a, about a third of the zoo is going to drain into the site. So how do we capture it? That's how the conversation started. And then it got complicated with all the different things. But that was the concept. So um, after three years of discussion and engineering and back and forth and yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, uh, we said, let's go. And what's under Africa, um, and I'm oversimplifying this, it's a massive gravel pit uh, with some significant pipes in it, and it's if you're looking, if you're a painted dog, that's where kind of, that's the end of it. And it goes like halfway up the savannah. So next time you're at the zoo, if you're looking at the, 
um, like if you're looking in the savannah, about halfway there, down the painted dog, under that ground is a massive gravel pit with huge pipes. And we use the moats to help channel the water through the exhibit, and it starts up a giraffe. So all those giraffe, all those moats are tied into other moats and other bodies of water, even cheetah mm-hmm. ties down. It eventually makes its way down um, to that gravel pit with the pipes. We then collect that water, and we send it into the basement of the birdhouse. I had so no idea. In the basement of the birdhouse, <laughs> if you walk in there, uh, there is a pretty high-tech membrane filter, which is like 0.02 microns, which is like really small. That's our, our, uh, our primary filtration at that point. That water then gets distributed into the other facilities, into their filtration area. So like Fiona, for example. We take this water, which is already very clean, and then we put it into Fiona's pool's filtration system, where it gets hit with sand and ozone. So it, it gets treated three times. One, naturally, because as it goes through this system, is constantly being contacted by sand and gravel and grasses and plant and all these things, which and it's rainwater, so it's already pretty clean. By the time it gets into that first filtration system, I'm not saying you should drink it, but you, it'd probably be fine. <laughs> then it goes through that membrane, that UV uh, or that membrane uh, called UF, ultra filtration system, and then it gets hit through sand, and then it gets hit with the, with ozone. <laughs> this is as clean as water as you can possibly imagine. Um, so we collect it under the hoofstock, go into the birdhouse, back over to Fiona. Uh, and that's just one example. The other, we have pipes that go into Lion. We have pipes that go up to Cheetah. We have pipes that go into Painted Dog. All those facilities, all that water is rainwater. So is that what I'm using to hose and clean, or if I turn the sink on and fill a cup up with water and drink it from the Hippo building, is that the same or is that separate? So when I say, that's a good question. When I say net zero, what we actually mean there is uh, no non-potable water use uh, will be coming from the city. So, for example, it's pretty much everything except for drinking water. Okay. So, like, the sinks or even, like, the Mountain Dew machines up at the zoo, like, that's all city tap water. That's a whole other thing. 20 years from now, we'll be making our own drinking water, too. That's phase four. (laughs) For now, it's just the the non-potable stuff. Irrigation, pools, hose down. Okay. But all the sinks has its own city tap. Which, at the zoo, all the non-potable stuff is... The vast majority, 99% of the water here is probably... It is almost all of it. Yeah. That's why when we say net zero... Because if you look at any net zero proclamation, there's always an asterisk. Always. on Whatever you waste, whatever. That's our asterisk. Because when we say net zero, it's that. And we say that because it's well into the 90s. That's what our water usage is. The drinking water is less than 1%. You just don't... I mean, look, think about manatee pools and all of Africa and elephant pools. And then then with the new elephant facility, that's going to be a quarter million gallon pool. So... That, when we talk about water at our zoo, that's what we're talking about, It's the pools. So even though we're adding a giant pool for Elephant Trek, it'll actually be saving us water. So Elephant Trek is kind of, is an interesting, uh, uh, it's doing two things for us. Because of, Elephant Trek is at the bottom of the zoo. So I'd said a third of the zoo drains into Africa. More than half the zoo drains into Asia. Like almost, mm. almost 55% um, goes down there. So because of Elephant Trek... Um, in that big old ugly parking lot, we'll, we have the room to bury these pipes, uh, and that's where the water's going anyway. So I don't need to pump anything; it just goes down to that site. So that's a beautiful thing from an engineering standpoint. Um, and on the flip side, I need a big old pool for twelve elephants. Yeah. So this isn't like some little dinky, you know, go to Walmart and get your ten thousand gallon little plastic pool. This is <laughs> this is a quarter million gallon pool. Um, that, that's just one. There's other water features on the facility. So on Elephant Trek, I would say we will be 
moving 350 to 400,000 gallons of water at any given time. Um, so in that million gallon, again, that's a million at a time. Throughout the year, that's about 30 million gallons of water that we'll collect is for elephant track that and then what's left over, which there'll be a lot left over. Like I said before, Manatee, Rhino Reserve, JT, the whole thing. So, Wow. So we've yeah. got, you said, a third of the water in the zoo drains to Africa, which yeah. is currently being stored. Soon we're going to have over 50% of the water draining towards Asia, which is going to be stored. So we're approaching 90% of the water usage at the zoo is being from recycled rainwater, essentially. Yes. In the last 10%, in, to take a half step back, Rue Valley As, yeah. has its own small systems, about 100,000 gallons. And that was actually a tricky site because only about... 4% of the zoo drains into that, but it was it was the only way I could grab it um, was to put it in Rue Valley. We thought about, can we pump it up to Swan Lake or pump, but it just got complicated. So Rue Valley has a system in there. And the nice thing about Rue Valley is we took all the mistakes we made from Africa, which were many, because again, there was no white paper. There was no research. There was no call your peer in Kansas City, say, how'd you, there was nothing. Yeah. And we made a lot of mistakes and we've been cleaning up those mistakes ever since. Um, we have a pretty good system down now, but Rue Valley, we took all those mistakes, and it's a different system. Same concept, but a lot of, a lot of significant tweaks. And then even with that, Elephant Truck, we're already making additional tweaks. So that when we pull in that million-gallon system, quite frankly, it's not a maintenance nightmare. That's, that's kind of what we're trying to make sure we don't have. Yeah. And make sure we don't have some infiltration issues, which we had way back in the day with Africa. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll probably be down to less than 10%. And that, to be honest with you, that last 10% is going to be a pain in the butt. So it's... Some of it's like JT, or JT, Jungle Trails is literally at the bottom. There's like literally at the very bottom of the zoo is Jungle Trails. There's a sliver there. we got to grab somehow, probably pump it up to Elephant Track. We're still not sure how we're going to do that. And there's a couple little goofy one-offs. But it, but when Elephant Track opens, we'll be uh, in the 90% range. You know, the next few years after that, we'll figure out that last 10%. Amazing. I love it. I, I, st I still don't get how it works. The rain <laughs> goes into the ground. And somehow ends up in pipes that well, we, you move we, to other we areas. We channel it, so it's a, good, it's a good question. So, like, you know, if rain hits the savanna on a normal rain, it just gets absorbed in the ground. It doesn't go into our pipes. It's that, it's that, it's anytime you're over like a quarter inch of rain, that's when you actually have flow, right? So, a little misting rain doesn't, nothing goes in. When you get a flow, so like if you ever go into, uh, if you're looking at the savanna and you look at the sidewalks, they just drain right into the savanna moat. There's no drain to take it yeah. into the moat. And the moat actually overflows into, uh, there's three big planters in Africa. Under those moats are massive gravel pits. Okay. So we throw the water that is about to overflow the savanna moat into that gravel pit. And then that first gravel pit, when it overflows, it goes into the next gravel pit. And then the next gravel pit. And then into the storage tanks. Um, so, and same thing, like, if you're looking at, Draft, those moats are for two reasons. One, to keep the drafts off the trees, but also that's how we funnel the water through the site, and all those moats are connected with pipes. So that water, if, if there's enough rain, it will get down there and it gets into the savanna moat. So all that stuff is tied together. You wouldn't, you never see any of this. No, I've worked no. here it's, it's, since 2009. Most people working don't even know that. Worked in this area amazing, from right? 2009, so, yes. So I need to do this for the whole staff. But oh my gosh. I think the point of it is when we're designing our exhibits, these, this is what we think about. Like every little thing, like how do we make this as energy efficient as humanly possible? Uh, how do we be more efficient? How do we make our own power, all these things? The water management, how do we think very critically about these things to make sure that we're 
lowering your impact on the earth, on our neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of those things, if you're thinking about it during the initial design phase, you can do them very cost effectively. It's when you do it like, you know, right before construction starts, like, hey, by the, uh, are we going to go green on this project? And how do we get some lead points and all this other stuff? And then it gets really expensive because you'd already designed a project and the ship has sailed and so people bail on it. We think about sustainability as we're putting crayon on the initial sketches. Like, how are we going to use this project to lower our footprint on this earth and have an impact on our neighbors in Avondale? That's just how we think. And that's, that's unusual. Yeah. That is not typical. Which makes me wonder what your daily job is like. Are you always looking to the, well, I'm sure you're always looking to the future, but like on a day-to-day -day basis, are you helping on these projects? Are you overseeing anyone? Or do you, are you like always dreaming up the next thing? Like, what do you do on a daily basis? <laughs> is that a, that's that's a, that's a, a tough crazy one. question? <laughs> that, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say, first of all, our zoo's facilities team is kind of like an embarrassment of riches. I mean, we have people on our team from Dean Violetta and Tony and Chris and Steve Fultz. I mean, just go down the list. I mean, it's just it's just insane how many good people we have on our team um, that have that same heart and passion to make a difference. So I don't need, you know, it's not like me holding her hand. Like, it's just, hey, this is what we do in this department. Like, no excuses, let's get her done. Uh, so we have a great team. So let me start with that. Um, but I would say my personal job, is a, it's, it is a mix. It is... Uh, like we manage our own construction projects. So there's days when I'm out there looking at, you know, the way the rebar was installed in the footing and like, because I've been doing it for 30 years, I'm like, oh, that doesn't look right. What's up with that? <laughs> to thinking about what's after more home to room. So there's already sketches that Dean and I are working on about 2030 and the future of City Barn and how we're going to move more things off site so we can open up more room for exhibits. And, you know, the maintenance department eventually will be a massive exhibit so that, that's part of my job is to be thinking four or five steps ahead, you know, working with folks like, you know, Chad and, and Reba and, and Jenna Key. Uh, but that's what my department does. Um, and so my, my job, the beautiful thing about my job, it's a mix of into the nitty gritty detail, um, but also thinking long term Yeah. with concepts and ideas. Um, because, yeah, you're managing all different types of departments and people, but then also projects and coming up, helping come up with those ideas, too. So... Yeah, so it's it's the, you know, you have a full spectrum of idea creation and then execution. Um, and our zoo, as a general rule, goes from idea creation to got it done in, like, blazing fast time. Some folks that have been at the zoo for a long time maybe don't really see that or appreciate that because they've never been in the real world like I have. But trust me, that is, we go lightning fast. And even talk to other zoos. You know, other zoos come here and are like, how do you... I can't believe you let, you let you do this stuff. Like, and then not just in facilities. I would say in general, things we do with marketing and PR and things our annual department gets to do, other zoos are like, what? For sure. Um, so that culture here um, allows us to stretch and, and do fun things. And I mean, you can't sit there and it's hard to dream about the future when you, get, you work at a zoo that is uh, not of that same mindset. Right. So the culture here, in my experience... Uh, is conducive to that and you know and then same thing with our thinking about these projects we're having like literally we have five tenants with our facilities team on all projects it's how does this project create an amazing environment for our animals in no particular order um, how does this create an amazing visitor experience uh, for our guests how does this lower the footprint uh, that our zoo is having on this earth how is this having a positive impact on our neighbors in Avondale um, and how is this addressing issues around racial, social, uh, 
gender inequality in our community. Which is like that's, that's it. Yeah, so proud of. And that, for anyone who's not familiar with Cincinnati or the neighborhood around us, the city we... I never know. Cincinnati has a million different neighborhoods or towns. It is, it is or a neighborhood. A neighborhood Avondale is a ne neighborhood that uh, the zoo resides in or right next to. So we are trying to help the community and, you know, do our part to keep up the community. So Avondale is a neighborhood uh, where we are located, for anyone not familiar. Yes. Mark, I am curious, though. You talked about, you know, how our water consumption and us saving more water it really helps address some of these socioeconomic economic injustices. Um, it really helps us address a lot of obviously these environmental changes that we're trying to make here. But when you're designing an exhibit, obviously water consumption is a huge point that you're trying to hit. But what other ways are you trying to address energy usage while designing? So um, the Cincinnati Zoo has more on-site connected renewable energy than every other zoo in the United States combined. Good job. <laughs> okay, next discussion. But, and it's, and it's, and it's not enough. It. It's not enough. So whenever we do an exhibit, so Elephant Trek's a good example because it's so huge. It's like, okay, uh, there's three things we do with energy here at the zoo. First and foremost, how do we use less? That's the most important thing. Use less energy. Then it's, let's make sure we're making our own whenever humanly possible. And then third, what is left over that we need to buy? Where's that coming from? Let's make it smart. But it's in that order of sequence. So... Um, so Elephant Track, we're putting in geothermal for the heating and cooling and all the super insulation and all these things that we do on pretty much all jobs, to be honest with you, um, are we blow through any and all um, requirements by far. Like for our lead credits, we always get the max on energy every single time. This is what we do. Best pumps, most efficient, all these things. Um, but because of Elephant Track, that forced the finalization of the conversation of the current shared parking lot we have with the VA between the zoo and the VA that's being developed literally right now. Um, it's mostly developed now, but we're going to finish it off. Part of that project is needed because of elephant track and losing the parking. So that's a domino. So because elephant track, we have to finalize the, uh, that project in the, uh, over there between the VA and us. We will be putting in a three megawatt array on that site. Solar panels. Yeah, solar panels, which is twice as much power as our current array that we put in uh, a decade ago. So part of our net zero plans is energy as well. So this is how Elephant Trek is pushing on these issues. So 10 years later, same rough square footage, twice as much power, just because panels are twice as much powerful as they were per square foot than they were a decade ago, almost. Um, and that will get us from currently we're about 22% of our power comes from the sun, like for the whole year. Um, in certain days where you actually push power back to the grid. But so 22%, that array will get us close to 70%. Wow. So we're, we're getting there. And this doesn't include the 25 megawatt array we're putting at our farm starting this fall, which is actually four times as much power as we will use in any given year. So we'll have other people buying into that array so they can achieve their net zero goals. So not only, it's like a community net zero party is what it is. Just like a big love fest up there. <laughs> That's so, amazing. So... Um, and the idea is that, and then we will be coupling batteries uh, with that array, uh, which will help with our resiliency and our backup power to be a true microgrid if and when we want to be, which helps us on the financial side of things and all these. And all this is done through a fairly complex financial engineering exercise called a PPA. We won't have time. That'll be another podcast. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but the point is, no capital for the zoo. It's a big partnership. Malink and some others is beautiful, just like our array 10 years ago. Uh, and long term, it will save us uh, an obscene amount of money. Um, but 
in the short term, it will dramatically slash our carbon footprint even further than it already has been cut. So two things. One, around here, so the zoo was built 1875, yep. and the city built up around the zoo. So we've run out of space, basically, here at the Cincinnati Zoo. And so we keep talking about parking lots. When I came here as an intern in 2009, the Africa area was half still parking lot. And um, since then, we have now destroyed another parking lot to make Elephant Trek. And obviously, we're putting the rain catch, I almost said barrels, they're not barrels, <laughs> much bigger big than that rainbow. tanks, <laughs> <Really big rainbow. laughs> underneath these, but also then um, we have another parking lot where solar panels were put above your car, so your cars are shaded, we're getting energy from that, and now we're doing another parking lot because we took away one outside of the zoo, solar panels, okay, all of that costs a ton of money up front, right? Is that stressful when you're asking for that, or like you've mentioned, the zoo is pretty great about taking these, but was that hard, a hard push at first, like you probably have to pay a lot but you get a lot more back it's like an investment yeah yeah, yeah. like well, is it hard to convince that's, that's a good that's, that's a complicated question to answer um for example solar the way those deals work in ohio because we're a nonprofit and we can't take the tax credit you do those through a third-party purchase power agreement that's a ppa so Millennium corporation oh. <laughs> I know for so that's that's so they pay for it they design it that's there they own it we don't even own the array okay until seven years later ten years later uh, for example, the current rate we have, um, we bought it three years ago with an ROI on that purchase of five years, which is solid. Yeah. Um, and we, we paid it off early. So now my our electric bills are $200,000 a year less forever. Wow. Right? Or at least for the rest of my career. Um, it'll be the same way with the new array. So all these projects um, take a mix of creative financial engineering, which again is hard. And that's where people, their brains start exploding like, I'm done with this. We keep pushing our CFO, Lori Voss, is amazing and isn't afraid to stretch and pull and get amazing partners like PNC Bank and others involved. The financial engineering, let's just be honest, is, is difficult. Um, but if there's a will, there's a way. And if you want to figure it out, you'll figure it out. If you don't want to figure it out, you'll find an excuse. We have no excuses here, so we get it done. And then we also do have a scenario where when we build these exhibits, you know, to be honest with you, 12, 15 years ago when we would talk to certain donors about, you know, our desires to build sustainably and things like that, we would... We weren't sure how to approach that. Like, some people might not like that and all that. I would say now we lead with those conversations. That, hey, this is going to lead the Platinum Building. And the reason that's important is because it's important that when we're building exhibits to lower our footprint, and this is going to be a huge win for the long-term financial integrity of our zoo. And donors love to hear that. So they're making an investment in our operating yeah. budget, quite frankly. So we're not building these big exhibits, and they're very wasteful. They're very inefficient. They're very cheap, Right. And then it's going to kick our butt forever because we're going to pay a ton of money on crappy pumps that don't last, use waste a huge amount of energy, and we're not collecting rainwater. So I got a quarter million gallon elephant pool that now I got to run the hose on constantly. We, we can't afford that. Yeah, I'm bringing we're bringing in twelve elephants. Eventually, we want to herd of twelve elephants. How much it cost to feed twelve elephants? <laughs> the way we're going to pay for that? Well, one we're going to grow it up at our farm um, with our farm. Yeah, I want to so have a conversation about that. Next in another podcast. podcast yes. Um, but we're going to offset that cost because of our net zero goals. Yeah. So our donors see that as, hey, the zoo is making very smart, very measured, very practical investments with, you know, our money and their money, um, that will create an incredible product, and is uh, financially prudent for the zoo in the long run. So like, who wouldn't like that? Right. Idea? Yeah. So win win. Makes sense. It is a win win. Well, okay. So we could do like 10, 10 episodes with you, <laughs> but. 
what would you say is your favorite part of your job or is there a favorite moment you can remember or you know on a day-to-day -day, or is there a favorite project you've done something you're most proud of that's a tough one I wouldn't say pride um, I would say <laughs> just because it's fresh um, the the project that I would say has been the most impactful for my team and we just finished it. Um, we put in, in collaboration with the Cincinnati Reds Children's Hospital and Procter & Gamble, we ideated, uh, designed, and built a one-acre urban uh, learning center for the local elementary school, uh, Rockdale, which is, it is the most incredible urban learning garden center in the United States. It is off the chain. It is so ridiculous. What does I it mean, entail? It's got hoop houses and greenhouses and pollinator gardens and solar panels and sensory garden for the kids with autism, vegetable growing, fruit trees, uh, teaching amphitheater. I mean, on it. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you're from Cincinnati, swing by and drive through it, uh, and you can walk through it. Uh, it is incredible. Uh, it was uh, funded through uh, our friends at Children's Hospital uh, primarily, but also P&G and Red support. Uh, but our zoo team designed it and built it. Um, with a lot of uh, friends and neighbors uh, in Avondale. And it's one of those facilities where it's going to be in the embedded in the curriculum for every student at the school. Amazing. So, and this is in the middle of a food desert, to be clear also. Yeah. So these kids, through the curriculum, will learn about the environmental issues and solar panels and how they work and growing your food and carbon sequestration. And they'll be learning about science and agriculture and pH of soil and all these things, like not from a book, but like, yeah, I in would have it, like loved physically that. in it every day, and then to learn about you know the, the food desert issue and nutrition and health and how they're connected and how to grow your own food, how to prepare your food, and then there's a workforce development piece of this in partnership with the Groundworks and some others uh, to teach the kids, quite frankly, about how to work hard and how to hustle and how to make things like physically make things, and then how we t and that's like one of the things we're looking at is salsa, uh, Rockdale salsa. Hmm. that will co-brand together, um, and these kids can learn how to grow the materials, prepare it, market it, advertise it, like all that stuff in the, in the how do you price it, and like the whole business case, and then we're going to go to the Hyde Park Farmer's Market and sell it for a significant premium, and people will buy it, <laughs> like it's going out of style, because that's what you do with the Hyde Park Farmer's yeah. Market, um, who have been great to talk to, by the way, about this. Um, so all of those things, and these are elementary, these Fantastic. are all kids that are 8, 9, 10 years old, um, that... That is a critical age to be talking to these folks about this. Um, Learning things that I still don't know as an adult how to do, <laughs> but also like the hands-on and not being told what to do, but shown and like given the opportunity makes you way more invested, I feel like. Oh, yeah. For yeah. their, you know. But if you were to, in, in, you, you really should drive through uh, and, and walk through the facility, but uh, it's, it's, it really is incredible. Um, and the heart and the soul uh, for developing that idea and bring it to life was the Cincinnati Zoo and our horticulture department man I mean they just they just lit it up and you know what the number of zoos in the United States um, that would allow a project like that, like that to come to fruition other than our zoo was I think roughly zero not one but because of what we've been doing for the last 15 years and Thane support and Dave and Lori um, they kind of let us get off the rail a little bit yeah this is outside of the although it is horticulture and we are a botanical garden so it's not like it's some like crazy idea yeah um but the number of zoos are doing things like this is none it's us and it's such a great collaboration in a way for us to kind of give back to the community educate the next generation of kids to 
get them focused on how to be sustainable, how to garden, how to do all these things for yourself. I know you said you wouldn't call it pride, but I definitely think it's something to be proud of. Yeah. For sure. It's an amazing well, project. I get nervous when I hear pride because, you know, you can get in trouble with, you know, being very prideful. But it's uh, it's one of those things like in an urban uh, facility. So that school, that particular school, um, the it's the percent of kids that come from broken homes are literally homeless. Except, I mean, it's... It is the, quite frankly, the poster child for underserved inner city school. And you talk about how a zoo, which is two blocks away, so literally it's two blocks from the zoo. How can the zoo engage with these student, these kids and their parents, quite frankly, on topics like conservation? Well, there's nowhere to start. Yeah. Traditionally. This is a backdoor way of starting a point about conservation, about, you know, the food and the quality and there's a pollinator garden and honeybees and you know, monarch butterflies and solar panels. So it's a way of getting these kids for the first time in their lives to start seeing how some of the stuff is connected together. And imagine a scenario where, so the current way we're set up is, so at our farm in Warren County, 25 miles away, we grow our food for our animals. So let's just focus on Fiona because that's what Chad Yelton told me to do. <laughs> so you, you take Fiona and we grow her alfalfa at the farm. We bring it down here. She consumes it. She poops it out. We put it in the digester that we're working on right now. Uh, that'll create a soil amendment, which we will then take over to Rockdale School uh, to amend the soil there um, so that the kids there can then grow the milkweed that they can then take home to their yards to put the milkweed in the yards so the monarchs have a, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. that. Or they can use that same uh, soil uh, to grow food, right? So that it, it, all this stuff is tied together um, and, you know, the last thing we were working on is getting every child at Rockdale up to our farm every single year as part of just a program to see what wetlands look like, to talk to an actual farmer, to ride a tractor, to see what honeybees, how they interact, and let's go on a hiking trail, and maybe we can do some camping. Like, all these things are mind-blowing, never-seen-before moments for these kids. And all of that is going to be made possible through this facility, through this physical space. And... We just opened it up a month ago, <laughs> and we have a dedicated full-time person there, Larry Carlos. That's his job. Is to I was wondering who was space, going to keep that to up. To make sure it looks great. So when you come back next year, it's going to look better than it does today as it grows in. And there's a full-time person from Rockdale there, too. So those two will be okay. coming. And there's going to be other people and volunteers and zoo teens. And, I mean, it's just going to yeah. go on. Summer camp. We're going to have summer camps there for folks. Um, but that is an example of our zoo doing things uh, that are definitely outside the norm uh, and are stretching and are having a dramatic and significant impact on people's lives. I was going to say, if you learn nothing else <laughs> during this episode, I hope you learned that the zoo is doing so much more than anyone sees, like when you come and visit, so much more than just animal care or, you know, we really are trying to make the world a better place starting here. And I think yeah, that's so amazing. Practice what you preach. Yeah, yeah Definitely. definitely. Mark, do you have a other Mark? Do you have a quiz for us today? I do, I do. If, if you're up for it, Mark, got a little quiz okay. for you. Obviously, we're talking to the the green expert here at the Cincinnati Zoo. I'm nervous, so I felt like we had to do a kind of a green related quiz. So you shouldn't be nervous. I should. <laughs> I should <be. laughs> we got five questions here lined up for you guys today. All right. Question one, Mark, you touched on it a little bit, this LEED certification process. So this is a certification process for buildings, for kind of areas that they get checkmarked, they get stamped, you know, this meets energy consumption, water saving, it, it meets all these boxes, right? 
So how many areas of the zoo are LEED certified, the Cincinnati Zoo? So we were just talking about this the other day. <laughs> Brew Valley, which was certified platinum, because we're awesome. Platinum's the highest market that is you, the can highest get. you can get. Highest you get. That's our minimum standard for all our projects is lead platinum, because if you're not going to go big, might as well just stop. Um, <laughs> That's so, the most Mark Fisher quote I've ever heard. It is. I, it's either, it's, that was either the 10th or 11th certified, and we just got certified. Oh, I want to say 10. Well, Jenna? I was going to guess 7, but now I'm going to guess 12. <laughs> According to our website, it's 10. 10, you got it right. Got it. One point for Mark. <laughs> Yes, and that that is a little bit of just a flex for you, the fact that we do have 10 lead certified like areas in our zoo. Yeah. But, I mean, that essentially equates to every single new area, new habitat, new building we've built over the last decade plus. And then there have been some others that you guys have been able to renovate to get back up to the standards, some old areas of the zoo. You kind of mentioned the low-hanging fruit that we have from being such an old zoo. It's awesome. Love nice. it. All right, next question. Green related, a plastic bag, just your average Kroger bag, takes how long to decompose in the soil? This is like multiple choice. We just Not multiple choice. Lot. Man, it's a long time. It's a long time. My guess is fifty thousand years. I was gonna say ever. I was gonna say a thousand. Mark's got it. It's a thousand years. <laughs> Roughly a thousand wow. years. Well, this guy's on fire. I was incredibly <laughs> off but I'm Damn. so well it's still very very sad but I'm so glad it's 1,000 and not 50,000 so just a millennia it'll be gone it'll <laughs> just be fine. a millennia it's fine yeah. and we got rid of all of our plastic bags yes we're so happy way. about that with our awesome partners SSA aluminum water bottles now gone yes. so happy it's aluminum yeah. now Gatorade yeah. cans Got it. Yeah, it's yep. just a couple of the green initiatives we've taken on here at the zoo. No more single-use plastics, no more straws, um, no more water plastic water bottles. We now have aluminum cans serving so as water bottles. Yeah, <laughs> Some of the great things we've done at the zoo here. You know, they say the lifespan for a plastic bag is roughly 15 minutes. And then yeah, right. it ends up hmm. taking a 1,000 years to decompose. So if you can, say no to single-use plastics. We've definitely done it here at the Cincinnati Zoo. We encourage everyone else to take it on. All right, Mark, two for two. Okay. <laughs> and the number three here, recycling one aluminum can saves enough energy to power an average TV for how long? Jeez. What? I, I was blown away by this statistic. I It's like one of those things, you know, you picture what difference does it actually make yeah. to recycle a can? Don't an LED light bulb or? <laughs> I don't have that. This is your average TV. <laughs> Uh, Wait, will you repeat the question? Yeah, I'm talking like plasma LED light, you know, for the TV. Like that, there's a big difference right now. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that one. The question <laughs> is, average it is says the average TV. Recycling one okay. aluminum can saves enough energy to power your average TV for how long? I'm going to say something like two years. <gasps> I was going to guess 30 minutes. <laughs> it's in between you guys. You're both a little bit off. It's roughly three to four hours. Roughly three to four hours one for can. one can. We yes. really, that stunk. We, we bombed that one. We did. <laughs> you, you did all right. I bombed wow, many of these questions. Which, an average American uses about 250 cans per year. Wow. So 250 cans, if you recycle all of those, you're powering a TV for 750 hours. It's probably more than you watch in your entire year. So you recycling does go a long back. way. Yeah. Yeah. That's well. Wow. That was embarrassing. Definitely. Hey, <laughs> two for three is nothing to be embarrassed of with these questions. They go off the rails a little bit sometimes. <laughs> All right.
<laughs> All right, we're heading to the important stuff now. All right. What famous green character is quoted as saying, do or do not, there is no try? Yoda. Yoda, of course. That was the easiest of course. Oh, question I've ever been given in my life. I haven't ever watched those movies, but... What? I, wait, wait, wait. Oh. Hold on a second. Back up. You did not watch Star Wars? No. That's a whole other podcast. That is definitely another podcast to dig into what's going on there. When you first said green character, Gumby came to mind. I was like, did that talk? I don't even know what that show was about. <laughs> definitely not Gumby. Definitely not. Oh, man. Really? Yeah. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Yoda says it in Empire Strikes Back. He's one of my favorite characters. I also thought this quote, do or do not, there is no try. It's very emblematic of our guest that we have on the show today. I've never heard a more fitting quote. Yes. (laughs) Yoda or Mark Fisher. You tell me who said it. I'm glad he likes Star Wars, and I hope that's a a compliment. It's a highlight of my day. Yeah. It's part of the conversation. All right. We're three for four here, heading into the last question. How tall is the green monster the left field wall at Boston Red Sox Fenway Park. So for those of you who don't, um, don't know, Fenway Park in Boston, home to the Red Sox, it's got this massive wall out in left field where if you hit a home run in Boston, it really counts because if you're hitting it to left field, that is. It really counts because you're hitting it over this massive wall. It's called the Green Monster. I'm going to guess 60 feet. Jenna? 150 you guys are both a little high. You over, maybe I talked it up too much. You're <laughs> it a little bit. It's 37 feet, 2 inches. I don't know what an average wall is in a baseball field, but... Like 10-ish. Yeah, probably 10-ish. Oh, 10-ish. really? That's yeah. it? 18. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what was it? It was 37 okay, feet, 2 so inches. Okay, so it's like triple yeah. what it would normally be. Yeah. Okay, more than triple. Pretty good size. I'm so impressed, though. A good example of, of what happens when you don't follow your gut. My in- initial instinct was, say, to 40 feet. <gasps> oh. But I, I taught myself how yeah. to Well, he really, gut. like, <laughs> talked it up. So, man, that was, I think, the worst oh, quiz I've done so far. Yeah, Yoda, baseball, sustainability. This is, like, the best <laughs> I've ever That's what I'm here given. for. It's awesome. <laughs> All right, Mark, you've talked talk to us so much about sustainability, ways that we can make an – we do make an impact here at the zoo, and we can continue to make an impact – but Jenna, do we have anything else for him? Yeah, so what can I do? As a typical non-hero like you and your team, <laughs> making these giant first ever strides and making a difference, what is something I can actually do? Um, so, I mean, the I, I hesitate to even have to say this because I feel like this is such an old worn out thing to talk about and we should all be doing it but i just know that a lot of us aren't is on your way home tonight if you haven't already do this i have already done this go to your local hardware store your home depot your lowe's whatever and buy an led light bulb for every light that's in your home the most majority of americans have not done that and if every american household in the united states did that it would cut our country's energy use by over five percent just like that and it would save people tons of money it would save american consumers in billions of dollars so it would be a financial windfall as uh, for consumers uh, and have a dramatic and significant impact um, on our carbon footprint five percent of the country's energy usage just like that just for light bulbs in the households would disappear just like that wow. see you say that most people should know or like do know that or it's old saying i don't think a lot of people know how much of a difference they actually make and that they'll save money yeah, it, so what What I really want to, and this is another podcast, <laughs> is talk about the more, what I really want people to do is pay attention. 
and listen yeah. and understand these things and do some research. Because the more you, just like my journey, the more you dig, like the water usage, I didn't know about the Kamai sewer issue. I had no idea. Our water, net zero, is less about saving water, more about keeping stormwater out of our sewer system. But that was only because, and then the socioeconomic, like it just snowballed. And the more you investigate and research, and I'm not talking like getting a PhD, I'm just saying get on, read some articles, get engaged, you know, follow, you know, individual people's posts that sound interesting. But the more you educate yourself on these issues, the more you'll want to know and the more you'll connect the dots and the more you'll understand that I, I need to get invested in this. This is a big deal. And the good news is almost all these sustainability efforts um, not only will have a significant environmental impact on your community, it'll save you money. Yeah. It, if that doesn't motivate you, I yeah. mean, I mean, I mean if, if the other stuff doesn't motivate you, usually money will. It's just like, you know, will. your next car, make sure it's an EV, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, little things, like, you know, long-term paybacks is, is awesome, you know? So, but I would say, unfortunately, we're still in the light bulb conversation stage. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is significant. And it's so easy to do. You could do it in an hour with what? one of your kids. And, and they're cheap, right? Like LED bulbs. Yeah, I mean, five years ago, it was like, eh, you know, it's only a three-year payback, which is still good. Now, typically these bulbs will pay themselves off in four, six, eight, 12 months. So it's, and they last three, four, five times as long. What so, should you do with the old bulbs, though? What is the responsible way to get rid of them? So here's a few, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, well, it depends on the type of bulb. Like, if it's an, if it's an old incandescent, um, I mean, that can literally be pitched in the trash. There are people like do electronic recycling that'll take those. If it's a fluorescent bulb, you should recycle those. And like most, like Home Depot, um, IKEA, uh, you can take your fluorescent bulbs and recycle them. For okay, because there is a very small amount of mercury in those uh, fluorescent bulbs. So, but again, just here's my bulb. You know, Google whatever place you're in the country recycling, and within five seconds you'll pop up. Oh, I can take it to these five places. Yeah, um, it's. So, again, these are complex issues, and we're looking for super simple answers, which is good, but sometimes it means a little bit of effort. Yep. And just like what happened with Hurricane Ida and the wildfires and all the social justice issues, it's like, come on, people. This requires some effort. And the more you educate yourself on what's going on, the more you'll be inspired to, to act. Definitely. And we'll get past just the light bulb conversation. But if we're going to start somewhere, we'll start with the freaking light bulbs. Sounds awesome. good to me. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and all of your information and time and all the hard work you're putting in to make everywhere in the zoo better. and Not just the zoo, the, zoo, the whole right? community, yeah. right? Like, it's amazing. Thanks for the opportunity to spread the gospel, and I'll see you on the next podcast. Sounds good. I can't, can't wait. wait. I have, like, ten more episode <laughs> ideas now. So. Well, I learned so much from this episode. I can't wait to have you all again already. Well, thanks for listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales.